All right, good morning, High Point Carryville family. How are we? Good to see you. Um, as you can probably tell, I'm not Pastor Parker. Uh, I have hair. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I can say that because I know him. I can say that because I know him. Uh, and he's not here. Um, so, uh, like, he's, uh, like Chris said earlier, my name's Ryan, and uh, I have the privilege of serving our young adults. Um, and the reason I don't ever come over here is because young adults have no money, and so they don't live out here. Um, <laughs> they don't live in Carville. Uh No, not really. But we actually only have, I think, one or two young adults that come to the Carville campus that are part of this family. So I primarily am out of East Memphis. Um, but yeah, it's a privilege to be with you. Um, and I just want to say off the uh, top, um, I've gotten to know Pastor Parker as a brother and friend over the last few years. And so I just want to say, um, you guys are very, very lucky in how the Lord has blessed you with a shepherd uh, that loves you, and he truly loves God's word, and he cares about this flock so much. And so I just want to honor him um, because I love that brother, and uh, I'm so honored that he asked me to come preach while he's gone. Yeah. And they, uh, they are down in Guatemala, as Chris said, so if y'all um, would pray for them this week as they are uh, down serving and sharing the gospel um, and doing the work that the Lord's called us to do. Um, so yeah, pray for him. Um, if you got your Bibles, uh, flip those open to Matthew chapter 22. And uh, one of my favorite traditions here at our church is we stand for the Word of God. So if you're able, uh, I would love for you to stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses. And starting in verse 1, it says, And again... Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, and one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And that's the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you that your word is sufficient, and you have given us um, all things pertaining to life and godliness through your word and spirit. And so, Father, I'm grateful that um, I don't come up here on my own authority, but I have the authority of your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we unpack it, uh, that you would give us eyes to see and hear it, ears to hear it, and um, Lord, that ultimately we would see you, Jesus, 
for who you are and what you came to do for us and what you are trying to teach us in this passage. And we know that um, we can't do this unless you reveal that to us and uh, give us the, uh, remove the veil from our eyes to see you for who you are. So Father, help us to worship you as King uh, in spirit and truth today. We love you in Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, what in the world is Jesus talking about in this parable? Uh, so just to kind of give you some context to where we're at in Matthew 22, right before this, the chapter before in Matthew 21, Jesus as the king of Israel has just come into the city of Jerusalem, as Psalm 48 calls the city of the great king, and he has just entered into the city uh, on a colt, on a donkey. And um, right after that, his, it's called his triumphal entry in Matthew 21. Right after that, he cleanses the temple, okay? And then he curses the fig tree, which I think is a clear uh, reference to Israel not producing the fruit that God wanted them to produce for him. And so Jesus is asserting his rightful authority over the city of Jerusalem because he is the king, okay? And so who he's speaking to in this passage is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who were supposed to lead God's people. And he's coming in as the king, as the eternal son of God, the son of David, the promised king. He didn't get elected to that title. He owns that title. Okay, we live in a democracy today and the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a monarchy and there's one king. He is the king of the world because he created the world and he doesn't need anybody's permission or vote to do that because that's who he is. He owns it. He has that authority. And yet, even though he has that authority, he still enters the, king, uh, the city humbly on a donkey because that's who he is. He has the authority and yet he's humble because he's a humble king. That's who our God is. There's no one like him. And so the way Matthew recounts this in chapter 21 and chapter 22 is Jesus is coming into the final week of his ministry. And so he cleanses the temple, which is the highest place of authority to worship God. He curses the fig tree and he's calling out these religious leaders who are ultimately supposed to be pointing God's people to God, not themselves. And here they are. <laughs> Sorry, Siri just started talking. I guess she thought I was talking to her. Um, here they are rejecting God's son. So they're supposed to be pointing God's people to God, and they're not. They're rejecting God's son, not encouraging them to believe in Jesus, who the law and the prophets were pointing to, but keeping them under the traditions of men. And so we see right before this chapter, the religious leaders challenge Jesus's authority as the king. And as I was wrestling with this passage this week, um, I think we often approach these parables and these passages like Jesus is just talking to unbelievers, right? He's inviting people into his kingdom, and he is. But who he's talking to directly is the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be representing God, the ones who are going to church, 
the ones who are in charge of shepherding the flock. He's talking to them in this passage. And that was really convicting for me this week. And so it's easy for us to to think he's talking to somebody else, but I don't think he is today. So you'll notice pretty quickly here in verse one, this parable, it's about a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Hmm. And the king sends servants to invite those who were invited to the wedding feast. And there's three different invitations that Jesus gives here to this wedding feast. So here's how I want to break this passage down, if you're taking notes. Three ways, Jesus gives three ways in this passage to reject the king. Number one, hostility towards the king. Number two, indifference towards the king. And number three, unchanged by the king. So first, direct hostility towards the king. What does that mean? Verse three, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now again, like I said earlier, we live in America, and so we elect our leaders. And so this doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but in a monarchy, regardless whether you would have voted for them or not, the king or queen is still the king or queen. There's no vote. Kings don't get elected. And what I love about Jesus is though he is humble, he is never shy about sharing who he is. Again, right before he enters the city on a donkey, he hears two people in the crowd shout this out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They say it twice. And you know what he says? Yeah? He accepts the title. He accepts the title as Lord and the son of David. He doesn't say, oh no, don't call me that. No, he willingly accepts the title because the title of that king, son of David, is the one that God said, that kingdom's never gonna end. He is gonna reign forever. That's what his promise was, that the son of David would take his throne over Jerusalem and he would be the king forever. And he just accepts that. He accepts being called not just the son of David, but Lord. This is what drove the Pharisees and religious leaders nuts about Jesus. And this is what drives us often in our sinful hearts. And this is what drives skeptics today nuts about Jesus. Jesus makes you make a decision about him with his claims. He makes you make a decision about him. If you're actually being intellectually honest, he makes you make a decision. Jesus' claims are what make people hostile towards him. He confronts everyone with who he claims to be. And the popular way today to deal with Jesus, and the popular way then, was to suppress his claims and just call him a good teacher. That's what they were doing, and that's what a lot of people do today. He's just a nice man. Oh, he came to show us how to serve and love people. Isn't that sweet? That's what really matters. If that's all that Jesus claimed to be was a good teacher, then why did the Pharisees want him dead? Why did they want him to be killed? They don't kill good teachers. They kill those who claim to be God. He literally came in the chapter before this and called the temple his house. 
He said, this is my house. This man-made temple that took 46 years to build, yeah, it's gonna get destroyed and I'm gonna rebuild it in three days. I'm the new temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. He replaced the temple. Good teachers don't do that. They wanted him dead because of his claims. They wanted him to just be a good teacher and that's why they immediately rejected him. In ancient cultures where there was a, when there was a new king or just any time a king had a banquet, it was considered a massive insult to be invited to the king's banquet and not go. A massive insult. It essentially meant you are rejecting the king's authority altogether. You don't see him as the king. You don't honor him as the king. You think you can go rogue and be your own king, so you don't go. This is the first way to reject Jesus. You say, nope, I'm the authority over my life because I know what's best. I completely reject his authority. And this is what a lot of these Pharisees are doing, and this is what a lot of people are doing today just ignoring his claims. So that's the first one. That's the easy one. That's the easy one to understand, is outright rejecting his authority as the king. That's number one. Second section, the indifference towards the king. This one's a little more tricky. Verse four, again, he sent other servants. So the first invitation, they just downright, outright rejected it. He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. It's gonna be a great feast and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Man. So the second way to reject the king, according to Jesus, is to be indifferent towards the king. What do I mean by indifferent? It means you look at Jesus or you hear about him and you're just in the middle. You're on the fence. You can take him or leave him. What he came to do for you isn't good news because you just don't understand him. You don't believe in him enough to give your whole life to him, to surrender everything to him, so you just think he's okay. And hey, if he wants to get me into heaven, that's cool. That's fire insurance. I mean, I don't wanna go to hell, so I'll go to church every now and then, I'll come on Easter, and you know what? I might even put on my Facebook bio, Christian, just so people have the idea that I am a good person, that I do the right things. But if he ever tells me something that I don't want to do, I'm good. Now, in the context of what Jesus is, the context of who he's talking to here, these Pharisees, he says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. I got What Jesus would be saying in our context is, I got other things going on in my life, Jesus. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read my Bible and grow my understanding of who you are. I don't have time to spend with you. I don't have time to teach other people the Bible. I don't have time to sacrifice and my time and my resources to help lead other people in my life to Christ. I don't have time to share the gospel. I'm just too busy. 
But hey, I'll take that free ticket into heaven. I'll take that fire insurance. To the Pharisees, he was saying, you say you know the scriptures, right? They claim to know the scriptures, the Old Testament. He's saying, but if you actually knew them, you would know it's all pointing to me. The kingdom of God is about me, Jesus says. It's a feast for the son. I'm the king, not you Pharisees. You are supposed to be shepherding the flock of God and pointing them to God, not yourselves. He's their bridegroom. He's who they're supposed to be feasting on. He's supposed to be the root of their joy, not you, not with your extra religious rules, not your long prayers in the courtyard so people can hear you, not your religious performance to make it look like you're such a good person and you're the spiritual elite. The kingdom of God is about the king. And if you don't want the king here on earth, why would you want him in heaven? I talk to so many young adults and college kids. And I asked them, if you don't want Jesus here, what makes you think you would want him in heaven? Heaven is about him. It's not about us. It's not about the guests. The feast is for him because of who he is and what he's done. He's the king. And so if you don't love him here, why would you think you love, would love him in heaven? Now, Jesus says here to these Pharisees, all of the law and the prophets were supposed to be preparing you for a day when God's people would be able to dine again with the Lord at his table with no barrier of sin, no restrictions. You Pharisees were supposed to be preparing Israel for my coming and you're not. That's why he's angry with them. And so ultimately, because of this, because of the failure on the Pharisees' part to prepare God's people for his son, Jerusalem gets a taste of judgment. This is in about 33 AD that Jesus is saying this, and 40 years later, in 70 AD, the temple gets destroyed. There's a revolt, and the Romans come in, and they destroy the temple, and Jerusalem gets judged. And this is a temporary judgment to reveal the coming judgment soon for rejecting the Son of God. They rejected the Messiah. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, and guess what? It happened. Because he's the greatest prophet in history. It's almost like he knew what was going to happen. Now, I want to say something about the tension here. There's a view in some Christian circles, it's not a majority view, but it's a minority view, that basically the church has replaced Israel. And taken the wrong way, I think that can be a really dangerous teaching because it supposes that Christians should stop sharing the gospel with Jews. That their window has been cut off. They got judged in 70 AD, so we just share the gospel with non-Jews. That is not true. We share the gospel with everybody. Everybody, we don't have time today, and maybe Parker will do this soon, to unpack all of the tension between the continuity and discontinuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament of the, the two covenants, but here's a passage for you to consider. 
Paul says in Ephesians 3, he's talking about this Jew and Gentile conflict. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, talking about the Old Testament, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul says, the mystery of what God was doing through the nation of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, was he was preserving the line of the second Adam. God made a covenant with Adam, and he made a promise in Genesis to bring about from Eve an offspring that would crush the head of the snake. That was before Israel was a nation. And so what he was doing was preserving the line of the second Adam, and he brought about, he made a covenant with Abraham to make them into a nation. And so through the second Adam, he's the savior of the world, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. All who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. That's what God was doing. Jesus said to his apostles, you receive without paying, so you give without pay. What does he mean? The gospel was freely given to you, and so you freely give the gospel to everyone you meet, regardless of their background. You weren't born in the right family. That's not why you were saved. You didn't do something to be saved. God saved you. He came to you. He freely gave grace, so you freely give it to others. So whether you're Jewish or Gentile, if you've put your faith in Christ, according to Paul in Galatians 3, you are all sons of Abraham heirs according to the promise by faith. So, just wanted to deal with that tension a little bit, but back to the indifference in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, there were people who heard Jesus preach, who heard the invitation to believe in him and follow him, and all they saw was just a teacher. That's all they saw. They saw a teacher who could give them some bread. Hey, that's cool. This guy gives me some free stuff. This guy can give me something else that I want. He can elevate my status, my social status, my career status, whatever they thought it was. Christendom, the definition of Christendom is where a culture has social benefits for being a Christian. And for a long time, our culture was that. But I think we can all agree in the last couple of decades, that is quickly, quickly going away. And so my question is, for us, what happens to the indifferent people towards the king when things get hard? 
when there are no longer social benefits to being a Christian? What happens to the people who are indifferent? My guess is they walk away. When your faith gets tested by fire, that's when you find out what your faith is actually in. When there's persecution, when you're tested, when things aren't going how you want them to go, when things are hard, you can, be, you can say you believe in something all you want, but is there actually fruit? Is there actually evidence that you believe what you say you believe? Personally, for me talking, again, earlier with uh, young adults and college kids all the time, I can tell you this indifference towards the king is normally the type of rejection that I encounter the most. Sure, there's some, some young people who are just completely hostile, but a lot of college kids, when I talk to them and I ask them, hey, what's your impression of Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Their response is something to the degree of, oh yeah, Jesus, me and Jesus are cool. I don't agree with everything he said, but yeah, he's cool. I believe in him. I just don't agree with everything he said. I don't go to church or anything. I'm not for the organized man religion or whatever, but yeah, me, me and Jesus are cool. And you know why they think that? It's because they still just see Jesus as another teacher. They still just see him as a religious founder. They still just see him as another man-made religion. They don't think they worship anything. David Foster Wallace, uh, maybe some of you have heard of him. Uh, he was a, a well-known atheist author. He actually uh, tragically took his life in the middle, uh, mid-2000s, um, so it's been a little bit. But he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College before he died, and he said this. This is an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only thing we get is, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. That's an atheist. And he had lived enough life to know that when he found meaning in things of this world, all he did was want more. They never fulfilled him. And so we all worship something, even these indifferent people. If you're in here and you've been indifferent towards Jesus, you still worship something, you still have a king. It says that they went off to their farm in business and paid no attention to the king because they had a different king. You worship what you find your meaning and value in. That can be your family, your kids, your job, your looks, anything you say, if that thing left my life, I would lose all meaning. That's your God. It's anything you find your meaning of life in. You don't have to step inside a church or a mosque to worship something. Anything can be an idol. So these Pharisees looked at Jesus, who was God in the flesh, and said, no, 
I'll worship my career, my power, my money as a Pharisee instead. And so Jesus is teaching us that the indifference towards him ends with the same result as downright rejecting him. The result is being separated from him forever because he's not your king. You have another king. The last way to reject the king is to be unchanged by the king. In Revelation, Jesus, uh, through John, speaks to seven churches, and one of them is the church of Laodicea, and he writes this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Like, make up your mind. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Though, listen to this. This is Jesus' words. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is not me trying to make anybody doubt their salvation. But I think Paul said, I don't think he said this. Paul said to examine yourself that you're in the faith. He said that to believers. And so healthy warnings for us to examine our lives, to examine what we're spending our time on, to examine what our our idols are and who our king is, that's healthy for a believer to do. And what does he say at the end there? Be zealous and repent. And if you come in, you dine with him. There's grace. So there's rejecting the king with hostility. There's being indifferent towards the king, being in the middle. Or maybe the most scary of all, to come to the feast and be unchanged by the king. He says in verse 9 and 10, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So this is the last invitation. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So this is the last gathering of people in this parable. And I would say where this is in the course of redemptive history is after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension at the beginning of the book of Acts, We see the message of Jesus as king through the apostles get rejected by first the Jews and then the Gentiles elsewhere. But through Paul and many others, the gospel not just goes to, it doesn't just go to Jerusalem and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth, right? That's the whole book of Acts is the birth of the church. And the job of the servants of the kingdom is to gather all who they can find regardless of their background. Whether they're, quote, bad or good. And you might think, 
Well, that's not fair. Look, at this point on the guest list, nobody's worthy of coming to this feast. Everyone has rejected the king. Nobody deserves to even be invited, much less come in and feast with him. It's all grace from the king. And if you don't believe me, read Romans 1, where Paul says that since the beginning of creation, God has revealed himself in creation, generally. He means you can look outside and you can go, oh yeah, there's a creator. That's beautiful, right? So because of that, no man is without excuse for the wrath of God that's coming. We've all rejected him. He's not only revealed himself generally in creation, he's also specially revealed himself through his word since Genesis. He's given his law. He sent prophets to speak his word and got rejected. And then, of course, ultimately, through Jesus, he has fully revealed himself and spoke through his son, and yet we've all rejected him. Nobody is worthy to come to this feast. So what do I mean by unchanged by the king? The last section. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what Jesus is saying is there will be people in the end, in the age to come, who spent their lives going to church, who got the invite to the feast, but they were still not born again. They never actually feasted on what the king did for them. They never actually tasted the grace of God. They weren't feasting on him the whole time. Remember I said earlier, the theme I think of all three of these rejections, all three of these invitations, the theme of all three of these rejections is all three of these rejections, those people only see Jesus as a teacher. That's it. They see him just as a teacher who's had some good ideas on how to make their life better or ideas on how to make them a better person, but they don't see him for what he is, which is a savior. They don't see him for the king that he is. Somebody who was like this was Martin Luther. You've probably heard of him, uh, knowing Parker. Um, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk in the 1500s, so he was a priest, uh, he was a very moral person, quote-unquote, but he actually wasn't a Christian yet until this happened. He was wrestling with Romans 1.17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he said this about this verse. He said, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word in Romans 1.17, where he says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God punishes the unrighteous. So he thought the righteousness of God was that God punishes the unrighteous. And he says, I had no confidence that my own heart could possibly assuage him or my own merit. And then I grasped 
Listen to this. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy God gives to us through Christ in faith. Thereupon, listen to these words, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise when I saw the difference that law is one thing and the gospel is another. I broke through. He broke through. It wasn't until Martin Luther was changed by the gospel, which means he was changed by the king, that's when he became a Christian. And this last person in the passage tried to come into the feast with his own garments. He tried to come in with what he was wearing himself. And in that day, it was pretty common for a king, when he would have a feast, to have a special robe or garment for his guests. And so it would have been an insult to come in your own clothes. And that was the way you honored that king. And this guest here at the end says, no, I'll wear my own garments. I'll come to the feast on my own merit, not wearing what the king has given me, but on what I can give, on what I can do, because I'm a good person. All three of these type of rejections lead to the same result, which is eternal punishment separated from Christ, where he says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a hard truth for us to hear. Rejecting Jesus in this life leads to separation from him in the next. And if you didn't want Jesus as your king, if you don't want him as your king in this life, why would you think you want him in the next life? That's the question to wrestle with. And like he said at the beginning, this feast is for the son. It's about him. Heaven is about Jesus. It's not about the guests. If you want Jesus Christ in this life, or sorry, if you don't want Jesus Christ in this life, then you don't want him in eternity. If you only see Jesus as a religious teacher who has come to give you moral reformation to just change some things up to make you a better person, then you aren't born again. You're not seeing the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in John 3. You're not seeing the true feast of what the Son has done. In John 3, Jesus talks to a very moral man named Nicodemus who had all the moral structure in the world. And he said to Nicodemus, a religious leader, nothing that you've done up to this point counts. Imagine that. That'd be like him coming to a pastor or somebody in ministry. Nothing up th- uh, that you've done up to this point counts. You have to be completely born again. That would be jarring. But what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is you have to be cleansed by what I came to do. You cannot, because of your corrupted nature, you cannot save yourself. You need something completely outside of yourself. You need a completely new nature. And what's interesting is in that conversation, Jesus references a really interesting passage in Numbers 21 where the Israelites are in the wilderness being killed by serpents. 
and they're on the ground and they're incapable of doing anything. They're paralyzed. Imagine if God had said in that moment, the Israelites are on the ground dying, okay? Imagine if God had said in that moment, Moses, write down some rules for how to get the venom out of their arm and how to make sure it doesn't happen again. Imagine if he had said that. They're on the ground dying. They can't move. And what if he had said, write down some more rules. Write down some more commandments. They were dying. They didn't need religion. They needed a savior. They didn't need a teacher. Now Jesus does become your teacher, but he has to be your savior first. So what God did say to Moses, praise God he did, Moses, while they're dying here, put a bronze serpent on a pole and have them look at it and they'll be healed. That's all they had to do was look at it. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter anything about your life to look. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, the same way Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever looks at him and believes in him will have eternal life. That's good news. That's good news this morning. You see, what Nicodemus and these Pharisees and a lot of times us, don't get, is repentance is not just repenting of your bad things you've done. It's also repenting of the bad reasons you've tried to do your good things. It's repenting of ever trying to bring your own robe of filthy rags before the throne of God. You have to become spiritually bankrupt and surrender all to Jesus. Once you see that, You're given a new heart, a new spirit, and you no longer do things to control God or to get something from him, but you love and you serve him because he's your father, not your boss. That's what happens in the new birth. You taste and experience what Jesus did for you, that he took your condemnation for you, that he took your place. He assuaged the father's wrath, that in Christ you are accepted and approved of because of what he's done. That's being born again. Being born again is what transforms your life from the inside out. And Jesus ends it with, many are invited, but few are chosen. You can't make yourself be born again. He says to Nicodemus, it's not of the flesh. The new birth happens to you by the Spirit. God does it. He cleanses you. He gives you eyes to see. He gives you ears to hear. So my question for us, as believers, if you're a believer in here, is are you feasting on Jesus? Are you feasting on him? Not will you feast on him one day, because if you are now, you will. Are you feasting on him? And if you're not a believer, the question is, have you broken through? Have you broken through that there is a feast coming? And if that's true, if you have tasted and seen what he's done for you, here's a couple of texts of what's coming. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich, full of marrow, 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples. This is 700 years before Christ. The veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The difference between all these wedding guests and those who will come into the feast in the kingdom to feast, not just to get kicked out, but to feast, is they have seen that Jesus Christ clothes you in his righteousness. He puts his robe of righteousness on you and you come into the feast, not with what you've done, but what he's done. And you see that. You see that he has taken the death that you deserved and that he has covered you by faith in his righteousness. He covers you with his robe. And if that's happened to you, this is what Jesus says. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus Christ came to swallow up death forever, to wipe away every tear, and to take sin away forever by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, to restore the image of God that the first Adam lost. He is making all things new. Luke 18, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Guys, this life, as James says, is a mist. It's like that. The Psalms say maybe 70, maybe 80 years if you're lucky. But eternity is forever. And Jesus says, if you forsake all to believe in me, and follow me as your king, not just your teacher, as your king, you will be at my feast, wrapped in his righteousness, wrapped in his clothes, wrapped in his garments that he paid for you, that he gifted you in the gospel. The new heaven and new earth being resurrected with Christ at his feast will be something unimaginably great. Paul said, no eye has seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. You look outside and you see, man, what a beautiful day. This is a sinful world. Picture a resurrected world. Do you long for that day? Do you long for the day of wine that never runs out. God did not create the senses to just be thrown away. Our hearing, our sight, our taste is all gonna be heightened. All the things that are good in this world are gonna be better. Do you long for this day? 
Dr. John Piper says, every good and beautiful fruit of God's spirit in your life will reverberate forever to the tribute of his grace in your faith. What you do now matters and it has lasting consequences or lasting fruit. So my question to all of us this morning is the common denominator between all three of these rejections is these people only saw Jesus as a teacher, just another religious teacher. So the question to examine our hearts with, am I treating Jesus just as a teacher? What am I spending my time on? What am I putting my hope in? What am I giving my life to? It's not to say that some of the things we've mentioned aren't good things, but they make horrible gods. So is Jesus just a teacher or is he your savior and your king who you wanna trust and follow for the rest of your life because of what he's done for you? If that's true, then what a joy that feast for the son is going to be. And our response as Christians is to go tell people about this feast that's coming to go invite people, everybody, to the coming feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your, um, your word is sufficient. You have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so, Father, I pray that for believers in here, um, they would feel no condemnation because your word says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, your warnings in scripture, your warnings to us in your word are good things. You reprove and discipline your children. So God, soften our hearts to take this not as punishment, but as good warnings to evaluate how are we spending our lives? What are we giving our lives to? Are we treating you as our king. And Lord, for those who are not Christians in here, Lord, for the first time, would you reveal yourself to them, not just as a teacher, but as a savior, as a king, as somebody who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory because of what you did for them on the cross. You took their place, you were their substitute, and you came to invite them to the feast where you wrap them in your robe of righteousness by nothing that they've done, but simply as a gift to be received. So Father, we love you. We pray for this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.